0: Good morning. Today, our scripture is from Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I've recently, been doing some premarital marital counseling. Um, it's that season of year. Summer's coming up. So, w- one of the critical conversations with a couple that's getting married is that the, the conversation around expectations. Expectations. This is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, source of conflict in the first years of marriage. And why is that? As human beings, we have this tendency to think that other people think like us especially someone who's close to you that that expectation is higher they really care about me they must think the same kind of way as me so for example maybe you think um, of course you should leave the sink empty at the end of the day you should wash all the dishes this is not a frat house that we live in right or maybe you're someone who thinks of course you don't have to wash every last dish Let's keep our priorities right. This is, a, this is not a restaurant. This is our home. Right. Maybe you have that kind of expectation. Two different people, two different kinds of expectations uh, equals conflict. Conflict around, conflict around less important things, like what, what does the sink look like at the end of the day? Um, but of course, expectations misalign on like more important things, As well. Things like um, communication, things like times together, things like financial goals, and uh, relationships with with family, and so on. There's an analogy here because just as different expectations bring the greatest conflict in marriage, expectations are often a source of deep pain and disappointment in the Christian life. And what I mean is misaligned expectations between you and the Lord. The kind of things that we expect from from him to do for us, which are not necessarily his priorities. We tend to think that Jesus thinks the same way as us uh, and has the same goals and priorities that we have too. And it it turns out, uh, I can say, that that is not the case. Uh, but this is not like marriage, right? Where in a marriage relationship, you, like, talk about it, and you you kind of compromise, you both meet in the middle. No, it's not like that with Jesus. Because if the expectations are misaligned, then you change. He does not meet you in the middle. You change. You align your expectations to his. So what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus... Um, is the kind of Messiah that we would not expect. He's the suffering Messiah, the suffering Christ. So, change your expectations. Change your expectations about him and what he came to do for you, first. Second, change your expectations about following him and what it looks like to follow him. First point. Jesus is the suffering Christ, so change your expectations about him and his work. So, Jesus is on the road. He's been ministering around Galilee for a year or two, and he's been uh, traveling from town to town, preaching about the kingdom of God, uh, healing all kinds of sicknesses and disease, casting out demons, and by this point, he's got a reputation. Uh, He's become a household name at this point. And so he asks his disciples this question, who do people say I am? And you get this sort of whole range of answers. There's lots of public opinion, is all over the place. Um, it's, it's for sure he's someone important, that's for sure, but who, who is he exactly? What's his significance, I- identity? That is not uh, a point of consensus. Jesus puts the question to them, to his disciples, what about you? fellows, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. Now for us, we're, we're used to hearing Christ uh, like it's Jesus' last name, as though he's Mr. Christ. And For us, Jesus and Christ always go together, right? We always hear them together. We're, we're, we're used to that. And we have to try to get in the headspace of the, of the, of the, the, the ancient audience At this time. In the ancient context, when the average person hears Christ, they have a mental picture. Their mental picture is a king, or like a general, a military king, right? A king that is anointed with oil. That's what Christ means. And then the Hebrew is Messiah, it means anointed. And this anointed king is anointed for a specific purpose. It is to lead the people of God in victory, like a a general. Like King David did, for example. David was anointed king. He was a Christ, a Messiah. He was anointed. And what did David do? He led Israel to defeat their enemies. He especially the Philistines, this, this neighboring enemy at that time that was like a thorn in, in Israel's side. He defeated foreign oppressors. David led victorious campaigns that brought peace to Israel. And the scriptures, the Psalms and the prophets, they were also pointing forward past the life of David. They were pointing forward to the day that would come when the the Messiah, like the capital M, Messiah, would come. A king like David descended from David, doing even greater things than David, who would rally the people of God and lead them in victory against oppressors. And in Jesus' day, the oppressor was Rome, the Roman Empire. So Jesus asked the question, and Peter answers, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And right away, two surprising things. Jesus says, don't tell anyone. He says to them. And then he, he tells them that he's going to suffer. Get this in your heads, as, as though he says, I'm going to suffer and be killed and rise again. And now this is very, a very awkward moment. It's very strange. It's very confusing. And Peter says... Um, Jesus, can I, can I talk with you for a moment? And he takes him aside, and he begins to rebuke Jesus. Um, Matthew's Gospel tells us actually what Peter said. Far be it from you, Lord, to suffer. This shall, this shall never happen to you, Peter says. And what follows is the strongest rebuke that a human being ever received from Jesus. No Pharisee ever got rebuked like this. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, he says to Peter. You are in my way. I am going to the cross. You are in the way. Get behind me, he says to him. Now, here's the application for this first point. Change your expectations about Jesus. And that means don't rebuke. Do not rebuke Jesus. Some of you are thinking, I would never do that. I would never rebuke Jesus. Now, is that true? If you're someone who believes in Jesus, you follow Jesus, then I'm, I'm certain you have expectations about him and the kinds of things that you hope for him to do in your life. Peter had expectations. He did. Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ, meaning that Jesus is here to lead a a victory campaign. And my life, Peter, my life is going to be caught up in his victory. We're going to go from strength to strength, me and Jesus, together. Good things are coming. Good things are coming. I've sacrificed a lot. And I'm with, I'm with Jesus, and he's on the up and up, and, and, and so am I with him. Now, what about you? What do you want him to do? What do you expect Jesus to do for you? For example, uh, we might expect him to help us in our career and, and prevent failure and loss. We expect him to heal our family conflict and to make peace. We expect him... Uh, to give us a marriage partner. We expect him to heal our bodies and take away pain. We expect him to make our lives better. About ten years ago, it was my prayer that God would mend a broken relationship in my life at that time. And I expected it. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, is he not? And I prayed and I prayed, and I asked God to act and to intervene and to change things. And what happened was nothing, to my impression. What happened was nothing, and I got more and more frustrated. And I can remember one day I was so, so something had happened earlier that day, and one I, I was so angry. In my prayer, I said to God, "What are you doing?" And it was not a, not a lament like in the Psalms that sometimes ask questions of God, sometimes kind of pour out the heart towards God. It was not a lament. It was a rebuke. I rebuked the Almighty. The Son of Man came to serve. That's true. But what so often happens is that we take that truth and we insert our own ideas, our own expectations, and you conclude that Jesus came to serve you in that way, in that specific, definite way, to meet your expectations, whatever they are, to make your life better in in, in that way that you have your imagination set upon. And if it doesn't happen you may very well find yourself rebuking the Lord. I did. I want to mature, don't you? Do you want to mature? I think that maturity means that when disappointment, when failure comes, when you realize that your expectations don't match his, then you're okay with that. You might need a season to process that that's that's of, of course understandable um, But in the end you're okay with that You relate to your doctor that way When you come to your doctor you're, you're coming to an authority and maybe what is wrong is different from what you thought um, But you don't rebuke your doctor Because you know that I don't have the full picture she does, or he does, have the full picture, and you trust authority when it comes to that kind of thing. Now, Jesus is that kind of authority. He is. He knows what is needed. <laughs> On a global scale, he knows what's needed. And in your life, he knows what's needed. And that might be different from your sense of what is needed. Jesus said about himself, the healthy Don't need a physician, but the sick. I have come to call sinners to repentance. And part of our problem as sinful people is that um, we actually need our priorities corrected. That's part of our problem. Um, The application here is this do not rebuke the Messiah for having different priorities from you. He did not come to fulfill your imagination, He came to do abundantly more than all you can ask or imagine, says the word of God. He came to take the sin of the world upon himself and nail it to the cross and your sin. Nail it to the cross. As the, the beginning of the new creation and new life and new humanity. So you don't rebuke him, you trust him. Second point, Jesus is the suffering Christ, so change your expectations about following him. So Jesus has this exchange with Peter that happens, and now it's a teaching moment. Jesus never missed a teaching moment. So he he gathers the, uh, the all the disciples, he gathers the crowd that's following, and the lesson is that those who follow Christ, the suffering Christ will also suffer. Jesus says, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this is one of the kind of mysterious sayings of Jesus. And, and, and what does it mean to lose your life for Jesus' sake? Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, Jesus says. And now it almost sounds like Jesus is saying that you can save your life if you suffer enough, and, and like the more that you suffer, um, the better you'll be saved that way. Well, that that can't be true, because salvation is a gift, right? Salvation is by grace. It's free grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. But here's the paradox. It's free grace and is costly. It will cost you everything to receive this grace and to live in it. It will cost you everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian in Germany during World War II, and he wrote a book that's titled The Cost of Discipleship. And he makes this contrast between cheap grace on one hand and costly grace on the other cheap grace. Basically, cheap grace uh, does not require anything from you. You live life however you want, and you do the bare minimum of activities that other Christians do. You're coasting on cheap grace. Costly grace is something that is entirely different. It's like like joining an elite team, if you're into sports, or like a elite chamber choir, if you're into music or the arts or something, okay? Pick your, pick your image. Um, okay, it's elite, right? But, surprisingly, it's also open to anybody. There's no tryout. Okay, you can just walk on to this, to this team or group. Um, if, if you can't sing in tune, you can still join. If you run a 20-minute mile, you can still join. Anyone can join, and you will never be cut. And, At the same time, the expectations of your commitment and your sacrifice are elite. Elite. When you join the team, you kiss your old life goodbye. You have to reorient now, reorient your life's priorities and your goals and your time and your money. You have multiple practices every week. And on your own time, you have to train and practice. And if you start coasting, you can bet that your coach is going to call you out. Because your coach is tough on you. And somehow, at the same time, totally has your back. And you know it. Gracious and tough. Demanding and encouraging. Have you known a coach like that, I wonder? I don't know. In your your background. Or a teacher or someone who related to you in that way they expected the absolute best and they're gracious to you and encouraging that's that's the coach that's your new life on the team total commitment you could even say that that uh, you you've you've laid down your life for the sake of this team for the sake of this coach and you discipline yourself and you push through hard things. You press on with your teammates. You press on towards the goal. Because the the individual narrative of your life, like the selfish narrative of your life, is no more. It has been folded into a story that is bigger than your single life, than your own life. And it's worth it. So here's the application on this point. Change your expectations about what it looks like to follow Jesus. It should look like Jesus himself. It should look like a life of discipline. It should involve difficulty and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Now I want to ask an honest question. What is appealing about that? That that sounds that sounds um, like a lot, right? Okay, the Christian life is calling you to this kind of discipline and sacrifice. Why is that good? Why why why? It's good. It's good because this world is not a carnival, contrary to what our devices and our entertainment would have us believe. It's not a theme park. This world that we live in is. In fact, a sad, very sad, and broken place. And do you want your life to count for justice? Do you want to light a flame in the darkness? I think you do. If that's the case, if you want that in your heart of hearts, then it's going to mean difficulty. It will. It's going to mean sacrifice in Jesus' name. Brian Stevenson is a public interest lawyer. He's based in Montgomery, Alabama, and he's the founder of an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. And this is what he says about justice. If you want to do justice, if you want to love mercy, if you have got to get proximate to the places and the people where injustice is made known. You cannot stay in safe places. You cannot stay in comfortable places. I believe, he says, I believe we're called to get proximate to places in our community where there is poverty and suffering and abuse and neglect. And I, I want to ask, what are those places? What are those places around you, I wonder? Where is there an opportunity to get proximate for the sake of Christ. For example, I I learned recently that uh, in this ward that we're in, Parkdale High Park, I learned that 40% of households in this ward have one occupant, one, one person living in a household. And I was shocked by that, 40%. And that was for the census in 2016, Think how many people that is. And now imagine um, the loneliness through years, years of lockdown and stay-at-home orders. People I'm I'm, I'm talking about who don't have a church community, who don't have any community, many of whom who don't have um, family living in Toronto. And what would it look like to get proximate to an isolated person in your area, would that be easy? Honestly, would that be easy? No, it would not be easy. You'd, you'd have to go out of your way, you would, to do that. When there's a chance to chat, you'd have to stop in the hallway or on the street, whatever. You'd have to choose to be present in that moment rather than like, be on time for that thing that you're going to, whatever that is. You might have to do the embarrassing thing and ask their name when you've actually seen them for years. And you know them by sight, but not by name. That's, 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 quite, I, that's uncomfortable. To do that, um, you'd get to know them over time. You would ask, how are you doing? And you would want to know the answer to that question. A few years ago, Imprint Magazine ran an article by a woman who did this. Her next-door neighbor was an elderly lady from the former Yugoslavia. And when the pandemic hit, she was more isolated than ever. Um, So this young woman got to know her neighbor, and she actually began to to visit sometimes. And it was not easy. She, She wrote about the experience. It was not easy because it turned out her neighbor needed things. She's in her eighties. for example, this young woman finds herself trying to make a printer work. And this printer is like from the 1980s. The elderly lady said, it's just, it's just missing a part. And she's saying, I think you need to buy a new printer. She's like, no, it's just missing a part. Can you try to, (laughs) there's this back and forth is not easy. It wasn't easy. Uh, She writes in the article how her neighbor would talk a lot about medieval history of Europe and um, other things that she had no interest in. And so she would find herself looking at the clock sometimes during these times together. It wasn't easy, but it was good. This is how the article ends. She writes this. My neighbor shared stories from her childhood during World War II. She shared about what it was like to lose her husband two days before Christmas and how she still can't bring herself to go and see the tall ships in the harbor because it was their favorite thing to do together. We talked about where I get my strength to live alone and what my faith looks like and how it's different from the religion that ruled the kingdoms of medieval Europe. To get proximate is not easy, but it is good, it's human. Now, where do you get motivation to get proximate? It's not enough to just try harder to love people, to try to like, muster the will power, to put in the time to be with people who are in difficulty, uh, with, with people who need someone to come and be proximate. It's not enough to just try harder. What you need, what I need, is to, verse 33 in our passage, set your mind on the things of God. And when you do that, you realize that proximity is the heartbeat of God. Because God sent his son into this world to get proximate to human beings living in sin and misery. Jesus was born into a broken family with lonely and broken people wherever he went. And he did not try to stay safe and comfortable. He did not isolate himself or push away what was broken and, and un- unjust. He didn't push, him, push away people. He got proximate to sin and misery. It's the theme of his life. And ultimately, it led to the cross. That is where Jesus is so proximate to sinners that he is actually carrying their sins on his shoulders and my sin upon his shoulders. We sang that this morning. And Jesus is hanging on the cross and he is plunged into the darkness and misery of this world so that whoever you are, whatever sin may be in your life, whatever is broken and filled with pain, whoever you are, you can know for sure that Jesus understands you. And he did not come to get proximate to people in general. He came to get close to specific people. For example, you. How do you get the motivation to deny yourself and take up a cross and get proximate where it's needed around you? The change that's needed is not in your willpower, it's in your heart. You will be motivated to the degree that you realize Jesus did this for you, for you. He saw you in need and loneliness, unable to remedy the pain and brokenness in your life. He saw you and he chose to love you and get close to you. We might expect that Jesus, for Jesus to be the Messiah, means that he he goes from strength to strength. He's building an empire. We might expect that. It turns out um, that he is better than that, that he has a better plan. So change your expectations. Trust him. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We might expect that following Jesus would would look like a life that gets better and better, um, where he gives you all the things that you want. It turns out that he's calling you to something different, something better than that, a new life where you pour yourself out for the good of others. So don't settle for anything less than that. And don't coast. Let Jesus lead you into the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us. We thank you for calling us to return to you uh, with all of our heart. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as we have um, heard Jesus Christ and his words to us, we pray that we will return wholeheartedly, lay aside any half-hearted ways and half-hearted thinking, and may we follow him with sincerity, with costly obedience, May we look to him, may may, may we, oh, oh God, may your Holy Spirit drive this home in our hearts, that he looked upon us in our need, in our loneliness, in our lostness, in our confusion, in our pain. He looked upon us and has had compassion on us. Implant this truth in our hearts, Father, because we don't want to just change our behaviors. We don't just want to try harder. We don't just want to, um, like, staple fruit onto the tree leaves. We want to be a people who obey you uh, with sincerity, from the heart, with love, with love for you and for the people around us. We pray, Lord, that, that out of Jesus' call, uh, that we may obey him with costly obedience, yes. And we ask your spirits leading um, in our lives and neighborhoods and workplace and streets and buildings. uh, We ask that we may get proximate where you call us, to the people that you call us to. For the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. Amen.